0: Hi, welcome to History Respond. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. Today's episode considers Astrologaster, a narrative-based comedy game set in Elizabethan London. The narrative follows the curious medical career of Simon Foreman, who pursues a medical license while treating his patients with a mixture of medicine and astrological readings. Foreman's work finds him not only diagnosing physical ailments, but also advising patients on financial and career opportunities As well as predicting their future love lives. The story weaves in well-known elements of Elizabethan life, including references to Shakespeare, crypto-Catholicism, colonial exploration, and, in a nice nod to Black Adder, Sir Walter Raleigh and Potatoes. My guest on today's show is University of Cambridge professor Lauren Castle, who served as a historical consultant on the game. Astrologaster is inspired largely by her work on Simon Foreman's real life case books, which she explored in detail in her book, Medicine and Magic in Elizabethan London. Over the last decade, Dr. Castle and a team of scholars have converted Foreman's original paper case books into a searchable digital archive that includes some 80,000 case records. Lauren, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Bob. Thank you very much for taking an interest in Astrologaster and my
0: research. Of course. Uh, So given that he's the protagonist of this game, I suppose we should start with Simon Foreman. Could you give our audience a brief background on his career as an astrologer slash physician?
1: Certainly. Uh, If if you wanted to make up a a character um, that was sort of larger than life, a little bit nasty, interested in sex, um, dabbled in things to do with the devil you would invent Simon Foreman, um, but he was a, a real person. And the fact that he lived this very colourful life and then was picked up by um, various literary authors over over the centuries is one of the reasons why he, he seems like a stock character. Um, mm. he, was, he was born to a sort of middling family, a family that was on their way down um, in Wiltshire, And um, we know a little bit about his early life because he wrote accounts of his life. So we have to take it all with a a pinch of salt. Um, He apparently had a great passion for learning, but he had to um, go and and be apprenticed to a grocer and and one of the other um, boys who had some, some book learning um, shared his, his books with Foreman and that's how Foreman learned to read reading and writing became one of the keys to his life um, and then he managed to go up to Oxford um, for a year or two um, as a sort of servant to to some um, wealthier young men but they were more interested, Foreman says, in um, hunting and, and chasing girls than he was at that stage Uh, And so it didn't really work out. And it's not clear how much he really learned while he was there. And then there's some sort of lost years where we don't quite know what he was doing. And then what we really know about is when he's around the age of 40, he arrives in London and he sets himself up as an aspiring astrologer physician. And to his great advantage, uh, the plague arrives Um, again, these are all his, this is all his version of things. Mm -hmm. Um, And he gets sick uh, and um, he's about to die. And um, he's got some potion that he had previously made sitting next to him. And I think his servant gives it to him to drink and he is revived. And that based on that, then he treats other people with the method that, that he used on himself. And, That was what launched his success as an astrologer physician in Elizabethan London. It it also was what led to a lot of his troubles, um, Mm. because you weren't allowed to just rock up in London and practice medicine. Medicine was regulated by the College of Physicians. So they, notoriously physicians, would they're, they're wealthy people, they often treated the elite, they would leave the city along with the other rich people um, when plague struck because you were less likely to contract it out in the countryside. And so there was a sort of gap in the market, right? Plague is happening, it's terrible. So these other practitioners, we call them irregular practitioners because they fall outside the layers of regulation, and they um, could set up shops. So Foreman didn't just set up shop, he aspired to work as an as, as a full-blown physician, he aspired to garner the the patronage of elite clients, and that really, really irritated the College of Physicians, the regulatory body. So when they all came back, they started what would be a fifteen-year, twenty-year pursuit of of Foreman. For the rest of his life, he was dogged by the College of Physicians, and they tried to stop him from from practicing, and they never really succeeded though they scared him
0: an awful lot mm-hmm. you get a good sense of that from the game um mm-hmm. it is it is an interesting story whenever you uh, you combine the word fortunate and plague in the same sentence that's quite a career i'm wondering uh, how common were astrologers and astrological readings at this time was it common for people to associate medicine with horoscopes and vice versa
1: People associated um, medicine with astrology. Um, so there was a, a kind of medical astrology that was taught at the universities. If, if you were um, a, a physician, you needed to know that you didn't let blood when the moon was in certain phases, for instance. Um, you, you know, timing an illness, they're always associated. And um, so the, the doctrine of critical days and uh, an illness was likely to peak um, at its 7th, 14th, or 20th day, um, which meant that you, uh, as you gave a prognosis, you were trying to measure when a disease started and when, therefore, it might conclude, because what you wanted as a doctor was a good result. So you knew that fundamentally nature was working with you, mm. and if you could work with nature, then you had a much greater Uh, chance of of healing somebody so astrology is about time and it's also about language it's a way of expressing what's going on um, within this huge cosmological scheme but what foreman and napier uh, napier is um uh foreman's protege so one of the reasons that that foreman is is uh, has the legacy he does is that he taught his practice to this very different character um who was um priest in Um, Buckinghamshire uh, called Richard Napier and and Napier had all of these, the the education um, and the chastity that Foreman did not, but for some reason they got along in astrological terms and um, their, their lives were were intertwined. Though Napier lived 30 years longer than Foreman and continued his practice. So we've, we've edited Foreman and Napier together, but Mm. the, so what they're doing when they are um, consulted by by a client isn't conventional medical astrology. What they're doing is what we call horrorary astrology, which is not based on the time that a person was born and their fortune, but that's what we would think of as a nativity or a horoscope, right? Mm-hmm. And you can project a person's life from the moment they're born based on the... the Planetary positions forward in time, but also if you don't know when somebody is born, you can take the accidents in their life, when they fell off their horse, when they first got married, and so forth. And you can plot all of these things if you're a good astrologer and then project backwards to work out when they were born, and therefore then you can project forwards in time. So, as I said, astrologers. Work with time, and they work with language, and that's what casting a horoscope is. Foreman and Napier, they they do that kind of astrology, but not very much. Mm-hmm. What they are really interested in is is this horary astrology, which is based on the moment at which somebody asks them a question. So this is a, a form of of interrogation, and this is slightly bonkers right that the idea <laughs> that the moment that the question is asked or the moment that the message arrives from a messenger because some of the consultations are done um in writing that that moment somehow relates to um that person's health and 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 well-being is is crazy that's that's this is fortune telling right mm-hmm. it's also you know, what anyone has ever done the Ching or, you know, it, this is how you're putting together a range of company com- combinations and seeing what that gives you. Mm. And then you will measure it against other signs, how the person looks, how the person feels, what people have told you about how the person looks or how the person feels, various excrements coming out of the body most commonly urine you might but these astrologers didn't you might feel their pulse so you you put all these the stellar signs together with your somatic signs your bodily signs and you can come up with a a diagnosis if it's not if if the first thing you check is whether this is an okay relationship that you have with this person Right. The the first thing the astrologer checks is whether or not he should even meddle with this case at all, Uh, because as with all doctors, they want a positive outcome. Um, And so they're looking for the cause of the disease. And by working out what the cause of the disease is, they can then work out whether or not they can. Can help the person. So, are other people doing this? That was your question. How yes. common are astrologers and astrological readings at the time? Throughout Europe, there are plenty of astrologers, and they come in. They come in a, diff, a variety of different sorts. Um, they are super learned guys who can be found in universities and often in in courts. Um, these are really. Very, very able mathematicians, astronomers, physicians, and so forth. Some of them write books, some of them don't write books, but they're um, really well respected, even if they do things that are controversial. People like like to fight, particularly like to fight in print uh, in these centuries. And and then you also had astrologers who were like marketplace astrologers, who were more like fortune tellers. And you have people in the middle or, or you have a, a, a range of these um, tracks in the middle. So you might buy a lot of people would buy an annual almanac. Now, your almanac might be produced by somebody very learned or it might be produced by, you know, somebody who just has a skill at, at computing uh, the calendar for the year. And an appetite to write a, little, a few little prophecies to go with it. And then it comes out of the local printing press and you buy it and you use it to find out when the saints days are, where the local markets are going to be, when you should and shouldn't get your hair cut. And you might write in it as though it's uh, what we would use as a, as a calendar. Right. Um, so we know about a lot of these people and we know that they're on the up in this era. And we also know that when you get to a few decades after Foreman, that England is crawling with astrologers. What we don't know is who the astrologers, like how many of them there really were when Foreman was practicing, probably several dozen, but we're not certain. But then we know that there are lots more Mm -hmm. and that. There are um, it becomes possible to learn the art of astrology not only from being taught by somebody, just as Napier was taught by Foreman, but a number of, of texts get written, some in circulating in manuscript. Foreman wrote one of these circulating in manuscript, and then they start to be printed. And once you have a printed manual, you can work out how to become an astrologer all by himself. Mm. So Foreman, he tells us so much about himself, but he never tells us how he learned what he was doing. And that's really, really weird. And he doesn't tell us partly because he wants us to think, he tells us this, that God chose him to Mm. have this knowledge. So he doesn't tell us who his master was. Mm. And so that helps to reinforce this illusion that what he is doing is is unusual. Um, I don't think it's quite as unusual as, as he would like to think. We certainly have other astrologers who are coming under the uh, attentions of the College of Physicians. But what's really unusual about Foreman and then about Napier is that their records were written out so systematically and that their records survive. Mm. And so we can put them on a, a an extreme end of a spectrum, but they're not they're not from Mars. You know, they're, <laughs> there are other people who are doing this sort of thing. It's just they did it so systematically. They were consulted at least 2,000 times a year, each of them, and what they wrote down survived. So mm. that's what makes them so unusual.
0: So obviously, Foreman and Napier are quite taken with their mixture of astrology and medicine. But do we have a sense of what the patients thought of this? I mean, was it common for patients to visit and then come back after they had received a diagnosis? So
1: you've just, um, the there's a simple math problem that you can do here, right? It, it, we have 80,000 consultations and we have 65,000 clients. Mm. That tells you that most of the clients didn't come back. <laughs> and, that's really really interesting um, I think more more could be done to sort of play with this now that we have the work completed and the facilities are there um, because what it may be that looking at this through um, the unit of the individual um, isn't isn't quite right that this was a world in which you didn't have a your general practitioner that you went to um, go and see all you know, choose from a, a range of practitioners but you but you you would draw on healthcare I mean healthcare is a terribly modern word but you would you would seek out expertise for illness throughout the course of your life whether that was asking your aunt or asking uh, a neighbor or asking somebody with whom you would have an actual economic transaction rather than mm-hmm. just give them a chicken because they happened to help you out. That is a form of economic transaction itself. So this is one of the questions about the case books that is about a bit strange. And one of the ways to, to, to sort out an explanation is to think in terms of grouping people by family or household or even by neighborhood. And then you start to see clusterings of people, and it becomes quite clear that the recourse to the astrologers was a shared knowledge, and that a family might use the astrologers over a longer period. Mm-hmm. But um, it may be that only one uh, one person only appeared as a as a patient um, a limited number of times, and I, and I should say it's. Foreman's records are incomplete, Napier's records are complete. So we only have a, about six years of Foreman's, which that's much less time for people to resurface in the records.
0: Sure. Yeah. Um, could you tell us a bit more about the case books themselves? Uh, the game provides you with a brief casebook summary of the patient examination and an astrological reading after each visit. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I'm wondering how closely those entries mimic the real-life casebooks.
1: The real-life casebooks are more beautiful? (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, No, uh, the real-life casebooks... um, They are very formulaic, but the reason I say they're more beautiful is that they're built around the astrological chart, right? And in Mm. the game, you look at the chart separately from the case summary. Um, The astrologers don't use columns. I I don't have the game open in front of me, but my recollection is is that the the case summary, you know, it's very regimented. It looks like a form that you might fill out. Whereas um, the astrologers wrote in – uh they they follow headings but they don't um you know it's not written out quite so it's it's not there's very little prose right. in the records right it starts with the name age um possibly their address the date and time at which the question is asked and then there's usually Um, the question that is asked right and all of that is just written down as a matter of course and then beneath that they drew the the horoscope of the the planetary positions at that moment and then they wrote out um some astrological readings and then they wrote out the judgment and we don't even know why they used the format that they did but they typically took a, a, a large piece of paper in fact they're using notebooks so um, they would, the, the size of one of their pages in their notebooks was like the size of a you know piece of one of our regular pieces of paper mm-hmm. and they would divide that into four so you they're, they're thinking in grids for some reason so then and but they don't follow any of their Grids, but they
0: will try.
1: <laughs> so we would typically have four cases on one page, and in the middle of each case, you would have a square. And that's why I say they're they're more beautiful than what you get in the um, summary uh, of the case in the game because they're they're very striking as as documents. Yeah, they're very very beautiful documents, but the the information in about the patients um, or the clients that we get in the game um, does roughly follow what we get in the case books, except is that because we're trying to progress your way through the game, um, it tells you where you are, right? Mm-hmm. And the books are um, – that's one of the reasons why we needed to edit and database them is that they just – Really deal with that case mm-hmm. and the moment that that person was was talking to the astrologer. Occasionally, the astrologer will say, "See two weeks back." Ah, uh, okay. Um, or will you can tell it's in a different ink, and he'll say she died, or he was delivered <laughs> right. of twins. Right, so you start to get a little bit of forwards and backwards. But not really, and you certainly don't get anything about um, the, which is the mission of the game. The um, you
0: you've pleased or displeased. Right, um, letters of recommendation. Yeah, exactly. Letters of reference. Yeah, um, yeah. I can I can understand why they included that as a mechanic, though. Um, you know, especially as a player, there's got to be kind of an endpoint, a purpose. Uh, to the game. But uh, as a historian, it sounds like the casebooks are a bit more interesting. Uh, let me ask you a couple of follow-up questions to that. Um, was the Were the drawings in the casebook, are they in the same hand as the handwriting, as the description of the patient?
1: Yes. Yes. So the astrologers, not all astrologers <clears throat> were good at drawing up a chart. It's a slightly different skill. One is more mm-hmm. mathuta- mathematical computational and the other is um, more about, you know, making judgments. Um, but yes, it, the astrologers did both. They weren't brilliant at doing the astrological computation, sure. but they did them well enough. Wow. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a unified hand, but we actually, we have, I mean, we refer to these as Foreman's and Napier's case books. It was their practices, but we have about 25 different hands, in the records, because they did have as assistance. Sometimes their assistants would look after the practice when they were away, or add a note in there. Occasionally, we have a, a patient hand, but mostly it's these two these two astrologers.
0: Right, and with regard to repeat visitors or pre- repeat patients, do you think that the reason why the book has, bookkeeping system is not that great has to do A little bit with the way that it appears that Napier and Foreman thought about their work in the sense that they were doing astrological readings at the moment when uh, the patient arrived and when they had an issue. And so for them, perhaps it wouldn't matter what a previous reading had been. It would be all about what was the condition at the moment
1: exactly exactly and they're they're not writing these a lot of doctors i mean doctors have only been keeping records like this for um and they're not even exactly like this for several decades this is a relatively new thing for doctors to be diarizing their practices right right um and so most doctors would make their notes at the end of the day they'd go off they make house calls um and and so you get a slightly neater, you get a, a, a clearer, a more digested case history. What we're getting, these are in the moment. And so they really are diaries. Right. And so the astrologers are recording things about themselves in these documents as well. So they're they're rough and ready, and they're not meant for posterity, though there is some sense in which they occasionally do go back and look at other things. Or they go back and and look to see if somebody had consulted them, you know, a year before uh, Mm -hmm. to refresh their memory. So they they do use them as records, but they're not they're not um, it's a tool. At least that's one of my ways of thinking about it. Is that one of the reasons we have these records is because they had to have the piece of paper in front of them in order to do the astrology, and for some reason it also became um, – that was extended to writing down the name, age, date, and the judgment and so forth.
0: Right, right. So you've already talked about this quite a bit, but beyond the physical examinations and the astrological readings, are there any other details about Elizabethan life that can be gleaned from these case books?
1: Huge amounts. I mean, the how rich these – records are is is something people have known about them for a long time. Um, And, you know, all of Elizabethan society is in foreman's records in in a certain kind of way. Um, Not only because of what there is about his life, but about the lives of of his, his patients. So in some ways, we need to consider casebooks. And I should say casebook is a later word that it works as an umbrella term to sure. define a whole bunch of um, documents written by doctors, whether during the, the consultation or at the end of the day. But they need to be understood um, alongside, um, you know, I, I don't like the term, but historians often use it to this term ego documents, right? Mm-hmm. Documents about the self. Um, so letters, diaries, autobiographies. All you know you can put case books in here as records about the daily activity of people's lives and and it's performative, of course there are conventions for all of these different genres of, of how they are written. Um, but here the convention is the medical encounter and what you get when you work out how to understand what's going on within those dynamics is, Huge amounts of information about families, households, friendships, sexual behaviors, social mores. We have a huge list of occupations. We have a huge list of names. More work needs to be done. Probably we haven't spotted the number of women actually who've come back because their names have changed. Mm -hmm. Because they've gotten married again. And so... The the, you can unpick aspects of the life cycle if you work through these records. And the occupations are just so cool. I mean, the the occupations tells you in a nutshell what we've done with these records. We've tried to build our categories from the records up. We haven't imposed classifications downwards.
0: Right. And it seems, I, I don't know if you've done this already, but it seems like there's opportunities to do a mapping project perhaps. Uh, with the source. I mean, yeah, if, it includes, have, if the entries include uh, addresses, it seems like that, that could be exactly.
1: something. There's a lot of geographical information. We got sort of overwhelmed with that and we ran out of time and we hope that um, it will be picked up. Our data is, you know, will be open to um, one of the historical mapping projects. Most of the historical mapping projects are focused on later periods. And the fact that our, our, Um, data straddles London and then the Midlands um, doesn't help either but we are hoping that that will be picked up so that people can um, start to link up uh, at least the places and probably some of the people in these records with what we know in in other sources
0: great so, I've covered a lot of historical video games on History Respawn, but this is one of the few times I've been able to talk with a professional historian who consulted on the game in question. And I'm wondering if you could tell us about that experience. Uh, were you at all familiar with games before this project?
1: I, I am not a gamer. Um, I have played a number of games because I played them with my children, who are now grown. I mean, I played. Them with grown children, as it were. Um, so, um, and I have a lot of respect with games, partly because I took what my sons was, were interested in seriously. But I did not come to this as somebody who would devote any of my time to playing games. And I still am not a, a game person, but I mm-hmm. also, um, you know, I, I can't read graphic novels either. It, it just doesn't suit my... Um, imagination um, but uh, I have absolutely no um, regrets and I had no hesitation about working um, on this project and so I mean folded into your question are, are two different issues um, one is what it means as a historian to consult on whether it's a game or um, a TV show or a radio program or whatever what what is our role? with our expertise and and how does that uh, relationship work and the other is what what does it mean to actually work on a game because part of what is so nice about the way games work is that or at least the way this game works but I think it holds true for a lot of games is that you're always making choices there are options Mm -hmm. right you're puzzling things out and everything you do has a consequence, whether you're, you know, however goal-driven the, the experience really is. Mm-hmm. And that's a really interesting way of thinking. Um, you know, one of the reasons I like being a historian, probably one of the reasons you like being a historian, is that we get to think like historians. Mm-hmm. And so when you put the way we think together with the way game developers think, you, you find some interesting synergies. There's some tensions and there's some synergies. Now I'm making it sound as though I am more involved in, in the making of this game than I in fact am. Um, Jennifer Schneiderite right, um, with the writer Catherine Neal and then a team of other people are the people who made this thing happen. But they respected me mm-hmm. and my work enough to ask me and I shared, I drew on on members of my team's expertise for this as well, Um, at each stage, whether it was in character development um, or with the the final script, what we thought of what they were doing. And then we would provide them with information as well. Mm -hmm. provided them with um, a kind of big um, grid of um, diseases and remedies so that they could fit those into the the rules. It's all rule-bound. So games are rule-bound, history is kind of rule-bound, and astrology is certainly rule-bound. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why this has come out, I think, as as interestingly as it has, because everyone's having to work within a set of weird rules all the time. So I I mean I, I thought it was I mean, my question is why more historians don't act as consultants. And what I don't know is whether um, they're not being asked or whether they're not being respected when they are asked or whether they are themselves saying, I'm not interested in doing that either because they're worried they're not going to be respected or because they are wishing to be remunerated in a way that the, the people who want their expertise are not wishing to remunerate. them. Mm. So I don't know the answer to all of that. Uh I think, you know, when I say I, I respected what the, the game developers were doing and they respected me, I mean that genuinely. So we were all on board to work out how to make the, the play between anachronism and nostalgia, which was one of my big concerns, but also one of their big concerns to make that that work out. Um that's where a lot of the humor comes in, that we have all these You know, we have mansplaining in the (laughs) movie consulting room. That's really funny.
0: Yeah. You're going back to your your questions about why more historians don't do this. I mean, it's my sense that it's kind of a combination of all of those factors. Uh, Compensation angle is not really something that I've encountered, but it could be a factor. But I think most of it has to do with, in the past, when I've talked to game developers, they are much more likely to consult secondary literature rather than go to the historians themselves. And then secondly, and this has definitely been an experience doing History Respawn, is that most of the scholars that I've encountered are not interested in games. And for instance, when I approach scholars to ask them to appear on the show, it's not uncommon for them to say no, simply because they, they don't care for games or they think that It's kind of lowbrow in terms of mediums. Um, But it seems that's a little bit different with perhaps historical films or historical television uh, period dramas. But hopefully that'll change because I feel like it's important for historians not only to critique games, but then perhaps to participate in creating them uh, as you have because I think this... This thing with games, I mean, I think it is going to be a, a central medium of the 21st century. And I think uh, we, we should be in that space, uh, speaking for historians at large.
1: Yeah, I think that's really helpful to hear you say. Um, I mean, the nature of, of our work editing the casebooks was quite strange. And it meant that we were open to all sorts of experimentation, And that meant I I said no to almost nothing. Um, (laughs) But I I think that even if I hadn't been in that mode, um, you know, I do. When journalists call me, I do talk to them. And then I decide I won't talk to them anymore when I realize, if I realize they're just using me um, to endorse what they want to hear me say rather than um, actually taking on board what I am saying. And, um, you know, the the amount of love and work that goes into fashioning a game is such that they wanted to make it worthwhile. That was at least my sense. But I don't know enough about historic, you know, the use of history and the use of games to know um, how, whether, I mean, history is usually weirder than anything anyone can imagine. And so actually when people don't, you know explore the history to the full they're missing something yeah. and then they also irritate a whole bunch of us because you know they do <laughs> things that are needlessly um uh incorrect
0: yes well just kind of as a final question i mean how does it feel to have your research turned into a game is there anything for instance that you hope players get out of this I mean I I
1: I think it's really funny that my research has been turned into a game. I I'm enormously proud of what Astrologaster is, which there were moments when I wasn't <laughs> sure that's how I would feel, but the you know when I and as I saw it develop, I realized that it it, it it's clever, it's funny, it's fun, and it's extremely beautiful and and I only saw it take shape sort of slowly, um, there was a moment when um, I was given sort of character sketches to read and I was laughing, just laughing and laughing and laughing. And I realized that I was working with people who had imaginations and a facility of words that was so very different from mine. Mm -hmm. And and, and that was really a, a, a very interesting moment. me right that because I'm a writer too right we are historians we write and I just thought you know huge respect and I just wanted to give them whatever I could to help them you know nurture those those energies um to make this as as good as possible at the same time they were able to meet deadlines they had real things at stake this was their livelihood me as a historian I have a a salary that comes in every month, regardless of what I actually do with my time. And uh, then they turned around and did crazy things, like they put not only the voices, which weren't part of the original plan, but they put the music into the the game.
0: The magical singers are fantastic. (laughs) They're fantastic.
1: So, you know, there I was. I mean, we would would laugh because I would – get very literal minded and fuss over trivial details. That was my job to be the pedantic historian. Mm-hmm. Um, but what they were creating was this, you know, I mean, the case books are about medical encounters they They record a performance. And what we have on the screen when you play the game is the performance and, anim- you know, the, the animation of mm-hmm. the case books. hmm. I, we, I couldn't have, if I, if somebody said to me, you know, here's a bunch of money you can commission some game developers to make a game, we wouldn't have come up with something this good. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's, I mean, I guess that's really the lesson for me. And and we did, you know, we worked with artists, we did commission um, of, of, in, in a sense, some work to relate to the case books, our work on case books, but I think actually the best, Work comes when the creative people come to the historians. And so, what I would hope is that games like Astralogaster will help to open those channels, you know, ensure that more game developers will go to historians or other forms of experts. And at the same time, that more experts will say yes when the request comes through, and that the business will be able to be conducted with the kind of respect, um, mutual respect that i shared with um jennifer catherine and and the rest of the team
0: well on that hopeful note that does it for today's episode lauren thank you so much for joining me
1: thank you uh, very much for for talking with me
0: if you enjoyed today's episode of history respawn please consider supporting our show by going to patreon.com forward slash history respond until next time goodbye